so good afternoon, everyone. Can you all hear me? Yes. Fantastic, great. Um, we don't have very long, and um, they, they say that most historians are shy, retiring people <laughs> who are afraid of collections of large numbers of people. And uh, <laughs> so that um, uh, most of my colleagues, of course, um, are more used to research uh, in small, confined spaces than large gatherings of this sort. Uh, and that's why it's difficult sometimes when people ask you, well, who are, what are you? Onyeka, what are you? What, what do you do? And, uh, and I say, well, I say I'm a historian. They say, oh, but, but you don't seem like a historian. <laughs> um, so I don't know how I will seem. Um, and uh, I don't know quite, but there, here we are. So this, um, what we're going to be talking about is a, is a different way of looking at history. The way that we tend to view history, it tends to be viewed through the lens of a few men who were very, very rich and quite good at killing people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> these people are the people that populate most of human history. So when we go back in time, it's Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or the Duke of Wellington or Lord Nelson. Um, occasionally, uh, we include some women, and they also happen to be quite good at killing people too, like Bodicea and, uh, and others. And this tends to be the history that we have. Uh, it's a history that doesn't include the vast majority of the world's population. The vast majority of the world's population are not kings or queens or noble people or aristocrats. They're ordinary people. Uh, the ordinary classes, the working classes, the lower classes. Also, it tends not to include the 50% of the population that don't define themselves as male, except for those few women, as I said, who happen to be rich and powerful. Uh, and therefore, we can say that it's a history that's not really inclusive and therefore perhaps not definitive history of humankind. Moreover, it tends to be very Eurocentric, focused on Europe, Western Europe, should I say, because Eastern Europe tends to be a mystery to most Western Europeans. Not all, but most. Uh, so Poland and Hungary and Russia tends not to feature within our history until we get sort of the Russian Revolution and then it sort of disappears afterwards. Perhaps the fall of the Berlin Wall or whatever. So we tend to be very Eurocentric, Western European focused. And this tends to make us think that all of those other histories that I've just mentioned have no connection to Western European history. So when we think of Western European history, we, think that we may think that it is populated entirely by the people that I've just been talking about. Because they are the familiar figures. Without realizing, as I've just said, that 50% of Western Europe didn't define itself as male. The vast majority of that population were part of the lower and laboring classes. And indeed, in Western Europe, there have been people of color for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Okay. So, uh, it is important and it is useful to have reference points. These are things that we can understand about a subject that we can hang something else on. So it is useful to know about kings and queens in the sense that it can provide a reference point to wider history. 
So if, for example, we read about Elizabeth I or, or Mary Queen of Scots or Charles V or Henry VIII, uh, then we can attach other histories that give us a wider perspective. But we shouldn't stop with those histories. We should use those as a touchstone for further development. So, for example, in France, Henry III, uh, Henry Navarre, uh, is an important historical figure within the wars of religion in France. However, if we explore more about his history, we might find an intersectional connection with other people. Same goes with Philip II and Philip III um, within the Iberian Peninsula, within the Habsburg Empire. If we look carefully at the Habsburg Empire, we begin to see connections between the Habsburgs and other parts of the world. If we look carefully at the Venetian Empire, we find that the Venetian Empire was an empire that stretched not just in Western Europe, but throughout Asia Minor and into parts of North Africa. This is perhaps why William Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice and in Othello and in other texts refers in a relatively roundabout way with diverse populations as part of the Venetian Empire. So when we think about European civilizations, European culture, we shouldn't perhaps essentialize even though essentializing may make us or help us to understand wider perspectives. So, the, this history that I'm talking about is not, or is it secret, is it hidden? It's there. It's there. But it may need a little bit of uncovering. I've spent more than 30 years um, uh, researching this, and I'm still just beginning just beginning. There is so much that I don't know, and there's so much that I need to learn, and there is so much that I still learn every single day. So, the important thing is that this history is not woke history. It's not politically correct history. It's not necessarily ideologically driven. I know some people may put it that way, but it's not. It's actually the history written by the people at the time in Western Europe written by the men at the time in Western Europe, who described and painted and drew the people who lived in Western Europe. And those pictures, those images, uh, the records that they've kept, often describe people of color, people of African and sometimes people of Asian descent. They are images that stretch all the way back throughout Western European history, throughout the so-called, we don't call it the Dark Ages anymore, but the early, early um, uh, period between the end of the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 CE, to the 11th century in the beginning of the medieval period, that 600-year period where they said the lights went out in Europe, not actually true. But during that period, there was a strong presence of people of African descent in Western Europe and in this country. There were even people of African descent amongst, shock horror, the Vikings and the Danish raiders, who came in the 8th century. And 800 years before that, in this country, when the Romans occupied, between the 54 um, BCE um, and 43 AD, all the way up to the 5th century, during that 500-year period, people of African descent were a strong and significant presence in this country. We can find Africans on Hadrian's Wall, part of 
what we call um, at the time Moorish people, people of North, West African, and occasionally East African origin, part of Roman auxiliary units and standard Roman units stationed on Hadrian's Wall from the 2nd and 3rd century ADE. We also have African, people of African descent, such as the Ivory Bangle Lady, present in uh, this country more, almost 2,000 years ago. The Beachy Head Woman, uh, buried with all of her finery, part of an African Romanized population, more than 2,000 years old. This African presence is continuous. It is continuous throughout the 11th, 12th, and 13th century. In the 13th century in Nottingham, Bartholomew was on the run from his employer called Roger de Linton. He was described as an African in 13th century um, records. We find that the, there are the black men of Biddlemore in the north of England in the 13th and the 14th century. And there are records such as um, Devizes talks about London being populated by a diverse population of people, which included people of African descent. They are a significant presence throughout um, England's early history, now, even before England was England. Their images are to be seen in English and Western European records. Sometimes the images are essentialized and exoticized, where the African can become a symbol of everything that is alien, strange, foreign, and wicked, but not always. Sometimes the images are representations of divinity and divine representations of self. Uh, there is a continuous discourse in which the third magi, the third magi is represented as an African. Africans also appear on English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, and um, uh, Cornish, um, if we de uh, separate Cornwall from England, as some Cornish people may well do, uh, <laughs> uh, coats of arms. These people of African descent appear continuously throughout the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, and then disappear in the 17th century. We'll come to the reason why they disappear in the 17th century. They are continuous. This is the coats of arms of Aragon, as in Catherine of Aragon. The family of Catherine of Aragon are a very important um, sort of segue or indication or introduction into the main body of our thinking. Now, Catherine of Aragon, of course, is coming from what is now Spain. But it wasn't called Spain when she was young. It was part of the Kingdom of Aragon. Why wasn't it called Spain? Because Spain, in the 8th, 9th, 10th, and all the way up to the 15th century, had parts of its kingdom that were controlled by people of African descent. These people of African descent were of North African, West African, and from Asia Minor. And they are colloquially called Moors. This term, uh, contrary to what people may feel, isn't actually a description of religion, since Moors could be of any religion. The word Moor comes from the Greek word and the Latinized word, both of them related to skin color. That skin color could vary from light brown to a very dark complexion, very menelated complexion. And therefore, the Moorish population of the Iberian Peninsula were extraordinarily diverse. But the significant percentage of that population were dark-skinned people. And they inhabited, uh, they arrived 
in the Iberian Peninsula in 711 under the leadership of Gibral al-Tariq. That the Rock of Gibraltar is named after. Gibraltar is named after Gibral al-Tariq. I just say it again. <laughs> Gibraltar is named after Gibral al-Tariq, the Moorish leader uh, who came from the um, who came from North Africa, and they invaded the Iberian Peninsula and ruled there for several hundreds of years. Their presence in the Iberian Peninsula was a source of concern for some Western European leaders. A reconquista was established in the 8th century in which many European nations signed up. This was another crusade, the Western Crusade, which is often forgotten. People always talk about the Eastern Crusade, you know, Richard I and the Lionheart and Salakuddin, Saladin. But there was a Western Crusade that took place in the Iberian Peninsula. This Western Crusade was about liberating Spain from Moorish rule. The population of the Iberian Peninsula didn't just stay there. It travelled into parts of France, it travelled into parts of what we might now call Germany, it travelled into parts of what we might now call Italy, and they travelled into England. And Scotland too. So, these people are to be seen um, throughout the 15th, 16th and early 17th century English records. Um, they, of course, include uh, John Blank, here depicted on the Westminster Tournament Roll. Westminster Tournament Roll was created to celebrate the birth of the son of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Yes, the son. He didn't live very long, but the tournament was to celebrate that. Sometimes people get confused about the presence of John Blank and say that he's the only one. You know, that this is an, an exceptional individual who is the only person. No, he's not the only one, uh, but it happens... It happens that we have an image. In fact, we have two images of him. This is the second image. The first image um, is of him coming to the celebrations. The second image is of him coming away from the celebrations. This is the second image. On both um, depictions, especially the first, there is the title above it that these trumpets begin the tournament celebrations. They give the cry of La Hostel. The cry of La Hostel was the cry that you gave to begin the celebrations. Trumpets began the celebrations. John Blank was part of the troop of trumpeteers that began the celebrations in 1511. This was a very important role. Black trumpeteers were in demand across Western Europe. The inclusion of John Blank is not some kind of Tudor political correctness. On the contrary, it is actually keeping pace with European fashions. It is keeping pace with European fashions in which people of African descent were the ordinary and significant representation within European court displays, especially those emerging from the Habsburg Empire, which was the trendsetter in 15th, 16th century Europe. And in the Habsburg Empire, you can see many, many John Blanks playing trumpets, um, playing drums, singing, or doing other performances uh, as part of the, the, the celebrations. So the inclusion of John Blank is to keep England in line with those European fashions. That is not often the way in which it's described, but it is actually one that can be supported by evidence. Okay, so we have this presence, it's there. But 
like in any kind of um, a discussion, uh, there may be, may be many of you who are naysayers. You say, no, 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 no. All, all he's done so far is shown us a few maps uh, and talked about a few people. Where's the hard evidence? Where, where, where's the solid evidence? But we have lots of hard evidence, uh, and we're going to be talking about that. Uh, and written sources, I know some of you won't be able to see it, but, but I, I shall take you through it. Now, there are some documents. These documents are very, very important because they talk about an African presence. They are not so significant for describing the status of that population, which we're going to explore, nor for explaining what happens to that population, but they provide considerable and substantive evidence that this presence existed. And they weren't just a few travelers, as some historians might claim, but they were a significant presence to be noted as significant by the people and authorities at the time. The first is a letter written on the 11th of July, 1596. This letter, purportedly to be written by Elizabeth I, it isn't written by Elizabeth I. And people need to stop saying it's written by Elizabeth I. It isn't, but purportedly written by Elizabeth I on the 11th of July, 1596. It is an open letter. It's not an act of parliament, as some people might say. It's an open letter in which it says that the Lord Mayor's, open letter to the Lord Mayors of London and the mayors of other, other towns and cities within England. It says, Her Majesty, understanding thereof, there are of late diverse blackamoors brought into the realm of which kind of persons there are already here too many. Okay, so this letter, <laughs> this letter is saying that this is, bear in mind that this is a letter that's more than 400 years old. Which is, uh, the significance of this is really important. It's more than 400 years old. I'll just repeat this line again. That there are of late diverse blackamoors brought into the realm of which kind of persons there are already, already here too many. So this letter is saying not only that there are people of African descent arriving in 1596, but there is already a significant presence that has been here for some time. It also says that these people should be sent forth of the land, removed. And this letter is supposedly or purportedly gives the authority to an Edward Baines, rather a disreputable individual, to take these individuals and deport them. Because, it says in particular, that there was a group of ten, there was ten of them, that came with Sir Thomas Baskerville. But it's not just talking about those ten. It's talking about a significant presence. But that letter on the 11th of July, 1596, didn't work. It didn't work. That's why seven days later, on the 18th of July, 1596, another letter was written which talked about you know, an African presence being significant, there being too many, uh, and, um, and that this population needs to be removed. But that letter didn't work either. Neither letter worked. And that's why in 1601, a proclamation was created. Uh, this proclamation was a little bolder in what it was willing to say. It says, whereas the Queen Majesty, tendering the good and welfare of her own natural subjects, is greatly distressed in these hard times of dearth and discontented to understand, this is her words, not, this is not some politically correct woke person that is saying this presence existed. This is actually a 400-year-old document making these statements 
to understand the great numbers of Negroes and Blackamoors, which as she is informed, are carried into this realm since the troubles between Her Highness and the King of Spain. This is the next line is really important too. Who are fostered and powered here. Fostered and powered here. Not enslaved. Fostered and powered here to the great annoyance of her own liege people. The letter is saying that these people have been fostered and powered and that ordinary white English people, I presume, are annoyed, are angry about this presence and are annoyed and angry about this presence being fostered and powered here. And it also says, rather in a contradictory way, that these people covet the relief, that the English people covet the relief which these people consume. Yes? And then it also says that these people, the African people that we've just herefore mentioned, have no understanding of Christ or his gospels. In other words, that they're pagan or they're animist or Muslim. And it's given a special commandment that these people shall be avoided out of the land. Right. Now, the 1601 proclamation didn't work either. <laughs> no, none of these documents worked, just like Enoch Powell's River of Blood speech didn't work. They didn't work. Now, for very different reasons, but similar to why in 1968 Enoch Powell's River Blood speech couldn't work or didn't work. Number of reasons. First of all, these documents were not written by Elizabeth I. They were written by an Englishman called Thomas uh, Shirley, working on behalf of a Dutch slave trader called Caspar van Senden. Caspar van Senden was working from Lübeck in modern-day Germany. He intended, through a trick, through a scheme, to gather people of African descent who were employed, fostered and powered here in the 16th century and have them deported. These documents didn't work, number one, because these people were already too ready, too much, and too ready integrated and assimilated within English society. They were already too integrated and too assimilated within English society for them to be extricated from it in the way in which these writers of these letters intended. How do we know this? Because they tell us so. Thomas Shirley um, writes and asks for permission to write or for his ideas to be enforced with greater power. So. He wants aid in his suit concerning the Blackamoors, he writes in a further petition. And he asks that the actions that he seeks to um, employ be supported with some other positive measure, uh, law or regulation or something, to give what he is doing the force of law. He writes, uh, Thomas Shirley writes to Robert Cecil, of the suit concerning the Blackamoors, Cecil seemed not to like that a commission of that nature to take what, to take what pleased him. Sorry, it's in, written in Elizabethan roundabout English. I, I'll try and translate for you. Thomas Shirley is writing to Robert Cecil. Cecil's one of the most powerful people in the country. And he's saying, Robert Cecil, will you help me please in this suit concerning the Blackamoors? And Cecil is replying, roughly translated, by saying that he doesn't like a commission of that nature. Now, this might be contrary to what we may think, because when we think of history, um, often we may think that things are getting better. 
and with a kind of modernist perspective, you might think that the past was full of nasty, wicked, horrible people, and that the future is going to be full of nice, pleasant people, and that we're all getting much nicer. And that therefore, if racism exists as part of modern-day society, in the past when we went backwards, surely racism and stuff like that would be much, much worse, and the institutions of power would be fundamentally more bigoted and prejudiced than they are now. It might not comfort us to think that history doesn't quite work like that. The relationships between people go up and down depending on many circumstances, economic, political, military, social, and cultural. It is too simple and too reductionist to think that things are just going to get better in the future and that things were horribly much worse in the past. We shouldn't presume that. It's a wrong presumption. So Robert Cecil is more circumspect. He doesn't want to get involved in these activities. Um, uh, Thomas Shirley continues to write, I most humbly thank you for your willingness touching the suit of Van Stenden for the transport of the moors at my request. And because I did not perceive by my son that he thought it not meet to have these kind taken from their masters compulsorily, I will forbear to urge you therein, but for expedition's sake. I beseech that the letter which Van Senden formerly had may be renewed to some stronger purpose than before, for which purpose I am bold to send you, how far it is desired to stretch, this matter, this is the important point, by your favour committed to Mr Secretary Herbert ten days past, lies as it did in respect that Mr Caesar, his servant, lost, as is said, the note of Her Majesty's pleasure therein. I'll repeat that again that this has lost the note of Her Majesty's pleasure therein. This is a roundabout Elizabethan way of saying that Queen Elizabeth is not supporting these documents. But hang on a minute. These documents that I've just been talking about are written in the hand as if they are Elizabeth's hand. So what's going on here? It's a trick. It's a scheme. A 16th century scheme that didn't work. They didn't get hold of a single African. We know that because they tell us so. That they could not find one single African to deport. Not one. Not one. Not one that they could send to Rwanda, as we do now. <laughs> right? Not one. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go on. So these, um, these measures, these 16th century measures, um, tried by these opportunists, tell us a lot about 15th and 16th century society, but don't tell us everything. To learn more, we need to look at records written by ordinary people, parish priests and clerks, that tell us about the populations that lived in their parishes. And these parishes are not just a, a question of metropolitan place. We'll say, oh, you're talking about London here on you. London. No, I'm not talking about London. I'm talking about everywhere, including Bodmin including Bodmin, had his own 16th century African presence, yes. Um, in fact, the second largest population in the 16th century was in St. Andrews in Plymouth, right? Uh, not quite here, but it's close. And, and this presence was the second largest population in 16th century England. The first and the largest population being St. Butolf without Aldgate in what is now uh, central London, around the um, uh, Liverpool Street area, Tower Hamlets area. That was the largest population. And the third largest population was in Bristol. However, there are populations throughout the entire 
the entire map that makes up what is now England and in Scotland and Wales too. They include people such as Mary Phyllis of Morosco. Mary Phyllis of Morosco uh, is recorded in the St. Butolf without all gate um, uh, records. Uh, she is described as a black Moor um, and being of Morosco. Uh, she was of late servant with Mistress Barker in Mark Lane and her father's name was Phyllis of Morosco, a black Moor being both a basket maker and shovel maker. Mary Phyllis of Morosco was baptized in 1596 in that parish. She had come to England when she was very young, brought to England by her father. Her father had died at the time that she came to be baptized, um, and she had willingly chosen to be baptized. Willingly chosen to be baptized. She was not a forced convert. Her baptism was celebrated and attended by many of the notaries of St. Botolph without Allgate. In her very long record, which is the longest record of a commoner within the St. Botolph without Allgate um, uh, memorandum day, but how do I know it's the longest record? Because I've read all the records within the St. Botolph without Allgate um, memorandum to say that. And her very long record is very detailed in explaining how she is a willing convert and a full member of her parish. It says, Mary Phyllis being about 20 years and having been in England for the space of 13 or 14 years was christened and now become a servant with one Millicent Porter, a seamstress dwelling in the liberty of East Smithfield. It also goes on that she did rehearse the articles of her belief. This is Mary Phyllis, which she, doth, which she did both say and rehearse very decently and well. Confessing her faith, then the said curate demanded of her if she was desirous to be baptized in the said faith. Whereunto she said, I. These um, uh, records um, also include individuals such as Sabrina. Sabrina is described as a blackamoor wench. Um, this word wench is not is not as derogatory as we may uh, think, but describes a woman of that time who hadn't yet become, uh, been married. So Sabrina is described as a black and more wench. We might note that they are using ethnically descriptive terms. And thank goodness that they are. Because 400 years later, people might say that these people don't exist. So it is absolutely fantastic that they are using these terms. Do these terms have, what's the word? Do these terms have negative connotations to them? Sometimes, but not always. But the important point is that these terms are very, very, very obvious. They are letting us know who these people are. What's also important perhaps for our, our thinking is that we must remember that baptisms as they took place didn't take place in the cold. They were often as the result of discussions between a parish priest and the individual who intended to be baptised. These discussions would, no doubt, have involved an element of asking how would you describe your past? How would you describe how you've come to England? How would you describe your religion? How would you describe perhaps your, even your ethnicity 
These records are the most important kinds of records that we have of whom was in England 500 years ago. And they paint a very, very, very different picture from the picture that we have hitherto postulated about this country. Uh, this is um, um, uh, a record for James Ugunbai, described as a Negro, baptized on the 7th of June, 1593, in Holy Trinity Minories. Now, we'll come to the word Negro in a moment. But this James Ugunbai, some of my colleagues, um, perhaps not quite understanding the significance of this name, have tended to sort of pass it off. Not understand what's going on here and not understand the agency of the person of African descent and how that agency is revealed in his name. I'm going to try and explain it to you because it's important. James Ogunbai. Perhaps I'll try it again. James Ogunbai. James Ogunbai. James Ogunbai. James Ogunbai. That's his name, Ogunbai. Ogunbai is a Yoruba name. In fact, it's the, uh, a, a conflation of three Yoruba names. Ogun, who's the god of iron and war, and Bai, meaning the son or the child of. Here written as Ogunbai. We can see a 16th century English parish priest trying to get the sound. Ogunbai, Ogunbai, oh, oh, Ogunbai, Ogunbai, and has written it accordingly. This is a man, James is a man of African descent, of Yoruba extraction, who has held on to his Yoruba name. Very interestingly, his Yoruba name relates to the god of iron and war, the pagan animist god of iron and war, the patron saint of, uh, of Yorubas. James has carefully managed to retain his Yoruba name while still taking an English first name. The parish priest has probably no understanding of the fact that Ogunbai's last name relates to the pagan animist god of iron and war. This man is retaining an element of his West African heritage, despite being baptized in an English church in 1593. Other records include Julianne, no last name. Julianne, a Blackamoor servant um, who was baptized in St. Mary Bothell, this was in London, in, in uh, 1601. These records are of men, women, and children. They are diverse, and they are throughout the country. Uh, uh, this is a very interesting record. For Christiane, the daughter of Christiane, Richard Shears Blackamoor, buried 14th of April, 1594. When it says Richard Shears Blackamoor, what does this mean? Does this offer some element of inscription of in servitude or indenture or, or, or enslavement? And this goes on to the next point, the most one of the most important points that I'm going to be making today. We should not presume that this population were automatically enslaved. We'll handle this question now because I'm sure some of you are going to come up to me afterwards and say, yes, but surely these people are all slaves. No, <coughs> we should not assume that these people are automatically enslaved. There isn't a 15th, 16th century kind of political correctness that is in the least bit ashamed of calling a person a slave if they are one. And there are records later on, 
and occasionally few from that from this period, where the person is enslaved and they are baptized as an enslaved person. And the records tend to, but not always, the records tend to say this. The slave of such and such was buried here. The enslaved person such and such was buried here. Because they have an intention to be accurate in the way in which they record these people's existence, their status and their origins. There is a desire to be accurate. And certainly there is a desire not to mislead anybody who should read the record. And therefore to hide the fact that somebody is a slave would probably be considered as a methodology of concealing something which was a fact. So these records that we've just been looking at are probably not, or almost certainly not, the records of enslaved people. But what does it mean when it says Richard Shears Blackamoor? It certainly does give an element of control, of regulation, perhaps indenture, perhaps in servitude. So uh, this is an interesting um, uh, record. Uh, it describes Grace, a Blackamoor. Uh, presented by the church wardens for living incontinently with Walter Church in Stepney in London. In other words, so she was living with this man called Walter Church and they were not married. In the 16th century, it was considered quite a crime to be living with somebody and not married. Walter Church is probably a white English person, which is why his ethnicity is not described. Hers is. So this conjures up another whole thing. A whole set of records um, which are present throughout English history. And it helps to explain why this significant visible population is not with us today. Because their descendants are you. You are their descendants. Not me. You. <laughs> not me. The, the, the descendants of these people are those who may call themselves the modern-day, present English population who may feel that they have been present in these isles for thousands of years. It is within these people that this set of people's ethnicity has flowed. And it has flowed throughout the country in amounts varying in degrees. Uh, this is an um, interesting uh, record. It is uh, from... Uh, Simon Valencia. Uh, Simon Valencia, a Blackamoor who was buried on the 20th of August, 1593. Simon, or Simon uh, Valencia, probably because he came from Valencia, uh, that he has that name, uh, in what is now modern-day Spain, was a Blackamoor servant to Stephen Dreffield, uh, a needlemaker. There are a significant number of African needlemakers present in 16th century England. In particular, there was an African needlemaker present in England during the time of the reign of Queen Mary, 1553 to 1558. In Cheapside, this African needlemaker had this art for making Spanish needles that nobody else had, and he would not teach anybody the art. Right? And he is famous, um, so much so that the Worshipful Company of Needlemakers used to have an image of him, which they claim now not to be able to find, um, uh, of him uh, on their crest. Um, so the, the making of Spanish needles was a profession in which Africans in this country were famous for. Uh, this is a record for Domingo. Domingo, a, a, a black Negro servant 
to Sir William Winter, the famous Sir William Winter. William Winter, the comrade of Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh and Hawkins and these people. And whilst I'm talking about Hawkins and Drake and Raleigh, I want you to know that all of these people had African servants in England. All of those people I've just mentioned had African servants in England, including Robert Cecil, including Elizabeth I. So those, um, when we see um, these uh, uh, modern um, TV shows, and then they show you the Elizabethan court, and they show you the, the households, and they, and they go back to the households. And, um, and uh, I mean, I love the MGM Merchant Ivory things. In Anne of the Thousand Days, um, uh, a, man for, uh, a Man for All Seasons. Um, I, I love those, those films, fantastic, right? But I, at no point am I drawn into a notion that this is an, an absolute imitation of life. <laughs> at no point. And I know from my research that the kind of image that they portray, and in the TV series, The Tudors, which I'm not quite such a fan of, um, I must say, but, but um, that at no point do I think that the imitation of life that is being portrayed there is an entirely accurate one. These households that are displayed had people of African descent within them. It is not political correctness to include these people. It is actually being more representative of the history itself to include these people um, uh, within the, um, uh, the portfolio and the expression of Englishness. So we move on from ordinary people and we talk a little bit, bless you, we talk about um, a Walter Ananaberry. Now, Walter Ananaberry was the son of Nossa Ananaberry. Nossa is a kind of king. And Walter Ananaberry, um, um, the son of Nossa Ananaberry, was from the kingdom of Dangwala. Dangwala is a region near Kabu, near Guinea-Bissau in West Africa. There it is. And he was baptized on the third day of February uh, in 1610 in Tottenham in London, in North London. That's where he was baptized. Walter Ananaberry was part of a number of West African dignitaries who were princes sent out of their land by their, by their kings, their fathers, into England to be baptized for political expediency. Why political expediency? West African kings sought out the favor and the interests of English monarchs because English monarchs had something that these West African kings wanted. What was it? It wasn't the Bible, actually, but they said it was the Bible. It wasn't the Bible. It was gunpowder. It was cannons. In 1591, the kingdom of Songhai was defeated by a Moorish army led by a Moroccan king at the behest of mercenaries from England and Spain. The Kingdom of Songhai was in West Africa. This sent a shockwave throughout West Africa, a shockwave, whereupon there was an arms race in which West African kings sent their sons to France, to England, to other parts of the world, anywhere but Spain and Portugal, to obtain these cannons, to obtain these gunpowder. And the English merchants and ambassadors were wily and clever and said that the magic that the gunpowder and the cannons 
use is magic that is obtained only from reading this book. What book is that, they said? The Bible. And if you are not a Christian, you, this magic will not work for you. How do we get this magic then? How do we become Christians? Well, you must send your son to, to England to be baptized. And then we give him the book where this magic is contained. And so that's how many of these sons, um, sons of West African dignitaries, arrived in the early part of the 16th century. It's not the same as later. It's not the same as later. There's a completely different and separate set of historiography around this. So uh, this is a, um, uh, I'm looking at the time, this is a record for Anne Vassy, a Blackamoor wife to Anthony Vassy. This is a record of a woman of African descent called Anne Vassy, who is the Blackamoor wife to Anthony Vassy, trumpeter of the said country. There's a lot in this record. I know we have to try and get ourselves into uh, 16th century English. What on earth do they mean? First of all, they are describing a woman of African descent uh, present in St. Butolf without all gate, and in fact, who's just been um, buried um, on the 24th of April, 1618. And then it says that she was the wife of Anthony Vassy, who is also a trumpeteer like John Blank, and that they are of the same said country. What country is that? They've not mentioned a country. When it says of the same said country, what are they talking about? The said country that they're referring to is the ethnic status of Anvasi. And the said country that they're referring to is this nation of Blackamoors, uh, a nation of Blackamoors that inhabited the Iberian Peninsula. And that's what they mean by said country. It's a way of describing ethnicity. It's a way of describing uh, nationhood, nationality. When they say said country, they're actually talking about ethnicity. And they are saying that both of these people are Blackamoors. And it's one of those rare occasions, and it is quite rare, where we see two people of African descent who are married to each other in England. Because the vast majority of people of African descent during the 15th and 16th century were married to and having relationships with white English people. So... Uh, these are records uh, for a, a number of African people uh, who are living um, uh, throughout um, the country. I've written it in yellow so that you can't read their names <laughs> on purpose, right? To say how these people are kind of invisible in the fabric of our history. And that they're kind of sort of submerged within the fabric of our history. And we need to bring them out. Uh, one in particular is Joanne Pointing, the wife of Thomas Pointing being a Blackamoor. This Joanne Pointing is the Blackamoor. Thomas Pointing is the white Englishman uh, who was married to her. And she's buried, uh, she died of the plague, unfortunately, on the 13th day uh, in 1603. So uh, these records are to be found throughout the country. Uh, uh, I think this is the, uh, the last one. This is the record for Deirdre Joanqua. Deirdre Joanqua was 20 years old. And he was the son of Cadiba, king of the river Cestus, in the country of Guinea. Of course, uh, Guinea isn't a country, it's a region um, that included Liberia and West Africa, uh, where Cestus is. And he was sent out of his country by his father, and by allowance of his authority, that's the authority of his father, and he was baptized on the 1st of January, 1610, in St. Mildred's Poultry in London. Now, this is only, 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 only a tiny, 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 
tiny part of a much larger presence that has continued to pepper English history, not only for the 15th and the 16th century, but throughout the whole 2,000-year period of English history. They have been, and they continue to be, a significant and viable part of English history. And when we are uncovering English history, we should not ignore them, because they are not just my history, individual history, but they are all of your history. And you should claim all of it. Now, I know you might have relatives that you don't like. It's acknowledged. It's acknowledged. We all have relatives that we don't like. Uh, so family members who are really not very... And when we think of our families, we might think, oh, yes, there's uncle this and aunt this and grandmother this. And then someone says, but isn't such and such your auntie or your uncle? Oh, yeah, but we don't talk about them. Oh, we don't talk about them. But they're still part of your family. And I can understand that within the narratives of British history that everybody wants to be a Viking. I understand that. I understand that. But those ships weren't particularly large. They weren't. And the, the, that population never formed, how can I say it? Never formed a dominantly ethnic population. Even though when they did rule large parts under the Dane law, during the 8th century and what have you, they did form a large, significant part of the nobility. They were never a large or significant part of the ordinary population. We have been talking about Africans being part of the ordinary population and submerging themselves within the ordinary population. And just how you may not wish to claim those uncles and your aunts that you, you don't like, or, or, you, or you don't particularly want to claim, they are still nevertheless part of your family. And these people are part of your family. They are part of English-British history. They are an integral aspect of English-British history. And this stretches back way into time. Uh, and we ought to reclaim them because it's part of our history. Thank you.